Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Hudson Institute Center for American Sea Power Forum on the Trump Navy, the envisioned one. The president has pledged to increase the size of the U.S. combat fleet from its current 274 ships to 350 ships. Hudson Center for American Sea Power has argued for this increase for years. We support it. We're here today to discuss what, in fact, a larger Navy would look like. One fact is certain, and it's cause for celebration. A larger fleet would relieve pressure on the men and women of America's sea services and their families who have experienced increased length deployments for years as threats rose while the fleet's size contracted. There are good reasons why the increase in fleet size that the president has proposed is needed. And I forgot to mention something here that's of minor importance in beginning these remarks. My name is Seth Cropsey, and I'm director of Hudson Institute's Center for American Sea Power. So I talked about the need for increase in fleet size. The near-peer power competition is returning as a fact of international life. Challenges from such smaller powers as Iran and non-state actors are increasing. The possibility of great power competition that lifted at the end of the Cold War is returning. Our potential adversaries have been working hard to challenge American sea power's ability to operate in their neighborhoods, which includes most of the world's oceanic choke points. The products of their labors, for example, anti-ship missiles, are relatively inexpensive and will become increasingly available to non-state actors globally. Hybrid warfare at sea is as old as ships that carry, ready for unfurling, the flags of their enemies in order to deceive. Such warfare will grow. So will the importance of American sea power's ability to communicate freely with such critical friends and allies as Taiwan and Japan in Asia and Israel in the eastern Mediterranean and in the Black Sea where Russian naval and military presence is once again established. So all this points toward a shift in the emphasis of U.S. sea power from projecting power from ship to shore to commanding the seas, especially at the strategic passages, which is also a traditional mission, naval mission. So this raises important questions about the purpose and design of the ships that will protect the nation's maritime interests in the future. There are other questions um, about paying for a larger fleet, about strategy, uh, about the growing role of unmanned air surface and subsurface platforms and weapons. Uh, we're honored to have three exceptionally thoughtful and reflective experts 
to discuss these and related issues here today. Uh, my Hudson Institute colleague, Brian McGrath, that guy, um, on the far, uh, well, to your right uh, side of the dais. Um, and I will ask questions of our two guests, and then I expect that there will be time for questions from the floor and perhaps indeed answers. Um, first, some introductions. Uh, Secretary Davidson is an Air Force veteran. She began her career in the U.S. Air Force, where she was the first woman to fly the tactical C-130 aircraft. She also flew the C-17 and was an instructor pilot at the Air Force Academy. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Engineering from the University of Colorado and an MA and PhD in International Studies from the University of South Carolina. She served as the 32nd Undersecretary, with distinction, as the 32nd Undersecretary of the United States Navy, as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Plans, and as the Director for Stability Operations. She also served as a presidentially appointed commissioner on the National Commission on the Structure of the Air Force and as a member of the Reserve Forces Policy Board. As an academic, she's taught graduate and undergrad courses at George Mason, at Georgetown, uh, Davidson College, and Northwestern, and is a frequent lecturer on civil-military relations at the nation's military colleges. She's a frequently published author, author of Lifting the Fog of Peace, um, and her honors include the Secretary of the Navy Medal for Distinguished Public Service and Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service. Uh, we're delighted to have Janine Davidson with us today. Prior to joining um, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments in 2013, Brian Clark, was uh, a special assistant to the Chief of Naval Operations and director of the CNO's uh, action group, the Commander's Action Group, where he led development of Navy strategy and implemented new initiatives in electromagnetic spectrum operations, undersea warfare, expeditionary operations, and personnel and readiness management. Before retiring from the Navy, uh, in 07, Mr. Clark was an enlisted and officer submariner serving in afloat and ashore submarine operational and training assignments, including tours as chief engineer and operations officer at the Navy's nuclear power training unit. Uh, Mr. Clark holds a Master of Science in National Security Studies from the National War College and a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Philosophy from the University of Idaho. He's a recipient of the Navy Department's Superior Service Medal and the Legion of Merit. Brian graduate, uh, Brian McGrath uh, is a graduate. I think he's such an intent, intense graduate of the University of Virginia. Um, I got ahead of myself there. He, he subsequently served as uh, a surface warfare officer until his retirement in 2008 at sea, he served primarily in cruisers and destroyers and commanded the destroyer USSS Bulkley. Um, during his command tour, he won the Surface Navy Association's Admiral Ed 
Admiral Elmo Zumwalt Award for Inspirational Leadership, and the Bulkley was awarded the Arizona Memorial Trophy. Um, since retirement, Brian has become active in presidential politics, serving first as the Navy Policy Team co-head for the Romney campaign in 2012, and then as the Navy and Marine Corps Policy Lead for the Rubio campaign in 2016. He is also Assistant Director of, the, of Hudson Institute Center for American Sea Power and Managing Director of the Ferry Bridge Group, LLC, a defense consulting firm. And I am delighted to have all of these three distinguished people here today. Um, and look, just a word about the, the format. Um, Brian McGrath and I are going to ask questions uh, from the um, either side of our two guests. Uh, and uh, after that, we'll open the floor to, uh, to questions from all of you. So once again, thank you for uh, joining us today. And I will ask the first question standing up. Um, Janine. Uh, in the last couple of days, the White House said that uh, has talked about a, an increase um, of defense spending um, to a level of fifty by the amount of fifty-four billion dollars for the coming fiscal year. Is this enough to reach the three hundred and fifty ship goal that President Trump has talked about? Um, and if so, how long will it take? Well, uh, thanks for having me here. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, that's obviously the pretty important question for this week. Um, and I think that the short answer is no. Um, we have a very long way to go. Um, we, have a, we have an enormous readiness problem in the Navy and actually across the services, but especially in the Navy that I think is going to be a lot harder to dig out of than people realize. And so while people are focused on, you know, building more, um, we have to at the same time uh, be operating the Navy that we have. And uh, I think that people are probably a little sticker shocked at how much it actually costs to operate our Navy, how much it actually costs to go to war. And, you know, we've been operating at full throttle since, you know, 9-11, even before that, I would say. And um, our, our planes are broken, our ships are old, um, and, and people don't talk about that as much. I and mean, they're starting to. You're starting to hear it. We were trying to beat the drum on this. But um, so $59 billion, we don't know what the OCO is going to be, and that's not trivial because we have relied on OCO in ways that we probably maybe could have, shouldn't, shouldn't have, but that's, that's a philosophical question we can discuss later. And so in, unless you, you know where that's going to go, we, we can't even really tell what the $59 billion is going to do. Um, so, I mean, the short answer is it's not going to solve the problem overnight. Um, it's definitely, you know, we've got to prime the pump a little bit. Um, I like to see some of the ships get back, added back in that had to be taken out um, of the 30-year shipbuilding plan. Um, so that will get us back on maybe our 30-year shipbuilding plan. But I think the bigger question, and I think we'll talk about this today, is what Navy are you trying to build here for the future? Um, just adding more um, 
as you guys know, you did a great study on what kind of Navy we should have um, is not just is not the only thing we need to be considering. And so um, I think it's, it's going to remain to be seen uh, what kind of strategy comes out of the Pentagon or what kind of strategy comes out of this administration, what kind of Navy we want, what kind of presence we want. And if um, and if we don't um, continue to uh, have the kinds of alliances that we have had, we're going to need an even bigger Navy because there's a big division of labor there that I think a lot of people don't actually, on day-to-day -day operations that we count on our allies a lot for. And, um, you know, if, if, if they don't continue to invest or if we don't continue to cooperate, we're going to have a much bigger problem. So Brian Clark is here for many reasons today. He's one of the uh, nation's foremost experts on naval operations and force structure. But the proximate cause of Seth and I uh, inviting him here today is that he led a study that was just released uh, this week, um, one of the three congressionally mandated future fleet architectures. Um, it's a magisterial work. I urge you to go to CSBA's site and read it and spend the time um, to, to, to understand it. I'm going to assume that you have a passing familiarity with it today. We're not going to spend a lot of time um, explaining it. Brian's answers, however, or the questions will be uh, phrased in a way to help bring some of that out. So first question I want to ask you, Brian, is you have a lot of time in the Navy staff in the, in the N81 shop in the, in the world where determining what the size of the Navy should be is. Compare the way the Navy builds that number with the way your study achieved its number. Uh, yeah, thanks, Brian, for uh, having me. And uh, Seth, thank you for inviting me to speak here today. And thank you all for coming. Uh, this is a terrific uh, event. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the Navy uh, and some of the work we've done to try to make the Navy better. Uh, so in terms of the differences between how we approach the, the uh, development of fleet architecture or force structure requirements compared to how the Navy does it, is the Navy uses uh, today's uh, strategy essentially and tries to come up with a future estimate of what ship requirements are going to be based on the strategy we use today. So today we kind of hope to be able to deal with two major contingencies overseas uh, with the hopes that we would be able to maintain the primacy of the U.S. military and thereby deter uh, aggression and deter the establishment of a hegemonic power on the uh, Asian or Eurasian continent. So that's kind of the de facto strategy that we're trying to pursue as a military. You can argue whether it's even feasible or not, given our current level of investment in the military. But that's the strategy we, we try to do. Uh, we think that if you think about into the future where the fleet's going to actually come into being, if we're building new ships, uh, we're not going to see necessarily those ships make a big difference in the size or shape of the Navy for another 15 or 20 years. So you should really be thinking about what's the strategy of 2030 likely to be in order to determine what my force structure requirements are going to be in that time frame. So it requires you a little bit to take you out of today and put you in that future position and say, well, what is the world of 2030 likely to be like? Uh, what are the adversaries we're going to face like? What do they want? 
What are some ways we could deter them? What are, what are the imperatives for the U.S. to pursue strategically? So you, you have to come up with that different strategy. Uh, you can already see the shape of that starting to form now. Instead of the two canonical major theater wars that the, the Navy and DOD traditionally used to develop their force structure requirements, you're likely to face a large number of smaller contingencies that happen simultaneously and may take a very long time to develop, sort of like you're seeing in the South China Sea, like you're seeing in Eastern Europe, like happened in Crimea. So uh, even with Iran and what's happening around uh, Iran with the Quds Force and proxies. So you see the, the development of a new way of fighting wars where you hope to gain influence and territory incrementally over a long period of time using proxies, using your own forces, but through this very incrementalist approach that eventually gets you to your objectives and you don't have to necessarily shed the kind of blood and, and capital that you would have to do if you wanted to do it all in one fell swoop. Well, that's a, that's a very different uh, challenge for the U.S. to face than two major theater wars that happen on short notice and we got to go flood the zone with a bunch of forces. Uh, on top of that, uh, most of our potential adversaries have the ability to hold our forces at bay for some period of time uh, using what's called anti-access or area denial capabilities, so long-range missiles, long-range sensors. They can shoot at us from a long ways away, forcing us to delay our arrival into the theater to try to be able to fight this major theater war that's going to happen. So the combination of this slow, uh, incrementalist way of fighting and these long-range sensor and weapon systems creates a condition where unless you're there already able to fight small-scale uh, conflicts day-to-day, -day, you may find yourself with a fait accompli that you're unable to stop because by the time U.S. forces arrive, you know, the Russians have overrun the Baltics, they've taken Crimea, they've, uh, the Iranians have closed the Strait of Hormuz, uh, China has gone into Taiwan, because all those things are very close at hand and they could happen very quickly if U.S. forces aren't there to try to do something about it immediately, uh, at some small scale probably, because it may not be a large scale uh, event when it occurs. So that drives force structure requirements in a very different direction than thinking about there's going to be a big big war in the South China Sea, it's going to happen, we're going to you know, you know, take a week to figure it out, We'll take months to, to, to mobilize the force. We'll flow them all in there, and then we'll have a big fight. That, that's not going to happen, but that's the basis of our force structure requirements today is that big fight that takes weeks or months to develop. Can I comment yeah, on that? And um, I just want to say this is one of the things that I actually really liked about your study compared to some of the other studies is that, to me, it's much more realistic. I've been sort of crying in the dark on this issue for a number of years that not just the Navy but the Pentagon itself um, – builds its force structure, designs and sizes it based on not even the war you described, but and not even a battle associated with the war you described, but just like the opening salvo of a battle of the war that you described. And so it's incredibly unrealistic, right? And um, so that's the first thing. The second thing was, even if that was what we would probably end up doing, we, we completely ignore what we're doing day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think, again, back to why we have a readiness problem, is because the demand on the Navy and the Air Force, um, the Army's demand has gone a little bit differently since the, the big Iraq and Afghanistan um, surges, but has been sort of just steady because we want to be there. We want to be there to prevent those things that you described. And so we size our force and we design our force for, for like this first de couple days of a tip fit of a battle and then we operate it completely differently and we and we burn it out 
And um, we just have to make a decision, right? And the next administration is going to have to decide if it's going to break that tradition <laughs> and, and start to accept that this is actually the new normal, that it isn't just like, oh, this will change, this will change, this will change. Because I think we've been saying that to ourselves for about 20 years. Right. So good job. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, we'll have to uh, figure this out so that you don't always ask questions of Brian, and I don't always ask questions of Janine. So if you want to ask a question of Janine right now, that will balance things out here, and then we'll... Excellent plan. Um, Madam Secretary, you were fortunate to start out life as the daughter of a naval officer, and then you lost your way and went into the Air Force. It wasn't my fault. Um, coming back, as you did, as uh, Under Secretary of the Navy, what surprised you the most about the Navy and Marine Corps in, in your year there as the undersecretary? Well, I mean, I don't know if I had any major surprises. I mean, I, like you said, I was a Navy brat, and I've been around the Pentagon for, for a number of years. Um, but there, the Navy is, is different in a couple ways from the other services. Um, I think, number one, it is a lot more, like, capital in the business sense of the word, intensive. I mean, um, we know this in this room, but I don't know that everybody really gets what that means. So when you, you know, shift your focus as a nation to a ground war for 10 years, it, it takes a toll on the Navy. I mean, that, that was a surprising thing for me. I, did, I hadn't realized the degree to which, um, like, submarines had been sort of not in production. Things had sort of dialed down on the Navy side. I'm sure the Navy was crying in the dark the whole time everybody was fighting this other war about the future, but it has definitely caught up. Um, so that was one sort of thing. Um, the, and and the, as the undersecretary, you're focused on that business part of it a lot. And so that was, um, that was an interesting, interesting dynamic. The other thing is the civil-military relations piece of it, I think, compared to some of the other services. The Navy, you know... I mean, it's part of the culture to be pretty independent. And uh, so... Are you saying that the uniforms are a little bit independent from the Secretariat? No, I'm just sort of... Yeah. <laughs> you know, and again, as a, as a daughter of a Navy officer, I wasn't surprised by that, but I knew I had to work on it to sort of, you know, my philosophy about civil-military relations is that, um, hey, if I were an admiral, I'd be doing everything I can to co-opt and brainwash the secretariat, right? Because they have different access in different ways, and if they're singing my tune in different forums, then all is good. And so um, that sort of dynamic and the and, and was, was different for me. And then the third thing was, I wasn't expecting this. The Navy is a lot more tribal than I realized that it was. So um, at first I thought, sure, I'm an Air Force girl coming into Navy, um, you know, and I'm going to try to pedal pretty fast and learn about the culture. But after a while, I realized that I probably knew as much about the submarine community as the aviators did. And I probably knew as much about you know, the surface warfare community as the submariners did, right? So then by having that sort of, that, that kind of gave me a little bit of a sort of undersecretary advantage to be able to sort of run interference on those tribes. Um, <clears throat> we don't want to emphasize uh, go over material that's already been gone over, but this material hasn't been gone over. So I wanted to, uh, Brian, to ask you um, if you could 
give us a, an idea of the connection between the fleet architecture that you recommend and the goal, the purpose of it, the, the underlying strategic justification for it. Uh, we mean doing it or what the architecture is intended to accomplish? The okay, latter. So, yeah, the so, latter. sorry. sorry. It was a homework assignment. <laughs> the purpose was just to answer the mail, okay. But the, uh, no, the, so the, the uh, architecture is designed in order to uh, de deter aggression by great powers uh, in an area where they have grown increasingly capable and uh, assertive. So that's the main objective, is we recognize that in the 2030s, probably the defining characteristic for U.S. military planning is going to be great power competition and the reemergence of players out there with the desire and the capability to act on it uh, to try to gain some objectives that they have. Now, they're, uh, albeit in their near abroad, but they're objectives that they would hope to get that would affect our alliances or affect our allies. So the architecture is designed fundamentally to deter that aggression, uh, which seems like a pretty straightforward proposition. We say, well, today's Navy is intended to deter aggression, isn't it? Well, I'd say that today's Navy is intended to deter aggression by virtue of its presence there in the hopes that because there's some ships out there that might get shot in the process of somebody attacking somebody else, the U.S. gets brought into it, and maybe we'll be able to eventually mobilize a response that then is able to reverse the effects of that aggression, which we saw in Iraq. That's essentially what happened. Is it wasn't ships in that case, but an ally got attacked by somebody. We came in, in this case Kuwait, pushed the Iraqis eventually back out of Kuwait, and you know the war eventually ended. And then we went into Iraq later on to change the regime. We went into Libya to change the regime with some boots on the ground, mostly air power. But all these were responding after the fact to something bad that had happened. And that's sort of the model that we've essentially fallen into in the post-Cold War era of responding to aggression after the fact, and we're going to eventually reverse it. So we hope to deter future aggression by saying, well, that same thing, bad thing's going to happen to you. Well, our potential adversaries took that to heart and said, well, I'm going to create a situation where you cannot come in after the fact and reverse the effects of the aggression. I'm going to put this anti-access area out there, so I'm going to slow you down in your attempt to arrive. I'm going to aim for objectives that are relatively close that I can get before you can actually get here in mass. So I, I, you know, they create a situation where unless you deter them, they're going to be able to uh, gain, uh, accomplish that aggression, gain their objective before we're ever able to respond and do something effectively about it. Uh, so our architecture is fundamentally designed to deter that aggression by posturing forces in such a way that with such capabilities that they would demonstrate to the enemy the potential of being able to deny their aggression outright, just stop them in their tracks, or failing that, delay it long enough for other forces to come to bear in order to eventually stop it from happening. Uh, so it's a, a deny and, and delay uh, attempt there. Accompanying that would be punishment attacks against the adversary's con uh, targets of interest or targets of value to be able to punish the enemy during the entire course of that aggression to demonstrate to them that the costs are not going to be worth the gain. This, it harkens back to our Cold War strategy. If you think about the maritime strategy of the Cold War, the Navy's role in that was to conduct these punishment attacks. You know, the Russians or the Soviets were going to go through the Folda Gap, invade Eastern Europe and Central Europe, I guess. And then uh, the Navy wasn't going to really be able to stop that, so we were going to punish the, uh, the Russians or the, the, the Soviets by attacking their flanks. The same kind of approach might be what we have to take today at a smaller scale against a country like a China going after Taiwan or against a Russia trying to go into the Baltics. Ryan, you're, the fleet architecture that you describe has a force structure within it that is, uh, I believe, 342 ships as compared to today's fleet of 274. 
And that 342 ships does not include uh, 40 patrol vessels, which are not counted under current rules. Um, that's a, a significantly higher number of ships than we have today. Can our industrial base get us there? Can our workforce get us there? Uh, so actually, that's, that's an interesting because there, those are two different questions. So first of all, the analysis we did for that we had to build a shipbuilding plan that's incorporated into the study, uh, and the shipbuilding plan that we developed looked at the industrial base capacity. And uh, for all the classes of ships we describe in there, surface combatants, submarines, amphibious ships, uh, logistics ships, et cetera, carriers, uh, we're able to meet that number by the end of the 2040, or 2030s, which would be 2040. So by, by the decade of the 2030s, we're able to reach the required numbers of all those classes. Uh, the one biggest challenge, and the one where you actually may not reach that number, is submarines. Uh, we don't reach the number by our plan of submarines until 2039, and that assumes a heroic level of submarine production that is at the ex absolute limit of what our shipyards would physically be able to produce, which would be four attack submarines per year eventually. Uh, so there would be investment required to build some new facilities and recapitalize some of the existing fallow facilities that are uh, at EB and HII that had previously been used to build submarines but haven't really been necessarily used in, the, in that way for a long time. So there'd be some investment necessary, particularly on the submarine front. The other place is the workforce. So uh, they're, they're clearly not, they're not hiring enough workers at the shipyards right now to build this many ships, or otherwise they're sitting around doing nothing. So you would have to hire a bunch of workers. Uh, shipyards in places like Hunt and Ingalls in uh, Pascagoula has a training pipeline and a, and a way of bringing on new workers you know, more rapidly maybe than, than other places. Uh, similarly, Marinette up in Wisconsin has something like that. Uh, but uh, we, and out down in uh, Newport News, there's another similar training program for people coming out of the civilian community wanting to go work at a shipyard. Uh, there's not necessarily that kind of thing up in Bath and up in um, uh, uh, Groton for the submarine shipyard up at uh, Electric Boat. So they would have to probably invest in the kind of capability to bring on more workers and quickly onboard them and train them. Okay. Uh, that might be an area where the state and the uh, federal government might need to get together to invest. Is that something? That I, think, I think that the workforce is a long pole in the tent here. And, um, our, and I think also our predictions of how fast we can gin up this machine um, if they prove to be, if they prove to be uh, too optimistic, I think it will be because of the workforce. And you're seeing it now already with, um, and again, this is another, this is to me, it's another um, hangover from this, um, the, the period of, dis, of not investing, number one, it's like a perfect storm, and then the sequestration, and then having to lay people off. Um, so, you know, when you lose some skilled workers and they just get to the point where they're going to either retire or go someplace else, you don't get them back and you have a big generational problem. And I, you know, walked the, you know, yards with, you know, during my time as under and I would always ask, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the oldest guy on the, on the ship, you know, the, 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 the maintenance guys, you know, what's your biggest issue? And they would say, um, workforce. And I said, well, we, you don't have enough. And he was like, no, they, the, the kids today, you know, they, they aren't coming in as trained as they used to. We don't do those kinds of, you know, you don't work on your car or in your garage, you know. He said, you know, he said the kinds of things that they're having to teach um, the next generation are, you know, starting even earlier than you would have thought, like basic tools and things like that. And so I think that this is actually a, a nationwide issue that we need to address, not just, you know, we talk about jobs not coming back and manufacturing, but this is where there are great, great manufacturing jobs. And, um, you know, 
the, the workforce needs to be, that we have to prime that pump, not just with, through Huntington Ingalls um, University that they have down there, but I mean, it goes way beyond that. Look, um, <clears throat> getting back to the question of <clears throat> how do we get from the current level to the 350 ship level, um, based on your rather recent experience uh, at Navy, um, could you give us an idea of um, how much money, roughly, is required to take care of things in the readiness accounts um, in comparison to um, what there is in the SCN accounts? I mean, just uh, I don't I don't want to get too technical yeah, here, but to just to give people a sense of what are we talking so about? I, I mean, I it happens every year, right? I mean, I came in I came in and you know, March or whatever, and within within a month or two, I was I was told we had a we had a seven hundred million dollar shortfall in the in in this just one year, right? In the in the shipbuilding or the, not the shipbuilding in the ship readiness accounts, mm -hmm. and so I, I I just jumped in on this issue because I thought you know. <laughs> We don't know the answers to these questions. We are trying to figure out how much it costs to operate our Navy, and it keeps being more than we think it's going to be because the ships are more broken than we think they're going to break. Why, why, why mid-year would we need a $600 million, you know, um, plus up? Are we, are we unlucky or unwise was what I kept asking. And the, the answer was somewhere in between. And we have these models to predict, you know, what we're going to need to do with our ships every single year. And... Um, they tend to be optimistic <laughs> because our ships are older than we um, than we than our models account for, I guess. And the same thing with with our aircraft. So, um, I mean, that's just in, in a one year in a one year time frame. And um, and then when you're going to have if you're going to um, continue to sort of underestimate how much things cost um, in the shipbuilding account as well. Then um, I think I think you're going to continue to be sticker shocked over and over and over again. Um, if our aircraft carriers are 12 billion a pop, they're going to come down. They say in the next couple, I'm sure they will. Um, then you know it, what we what we fail to do also a lot of times is um, factor in the sustainment costs as well, right? And so. We, we talk about the acquisition, the procurement, but then down the line, the sustainment costs. And that's why I'm so kind of hitting this over and over again about, you know, we have a readiness problem, but we also want to build and expand and modernize. And um, if you're going to try to expand and modernize and you're not going to factor in the sustainment costs, you're going to be right back where we are today, I think. I, so I guess you probably are better on the, on those, on the latest numbers. Uh, well, uh, maybe as a, as a little number, as a former numbers. programmer, number I can't talk about right. yeah. uh, So that what happens too? There's a, there's some subtleties too that come into play. So part of our readiness problem is a force structure problem because just like uh, Janine was saying, we were over, we've been overusing the Navy because we've been deploying it more often and for longer than we have in the past. And that's because we don't have enough ships to address the demand signal. So for example, we've been deploying about 100 ships continuously at sea since 1998 or so. So you know, for, right. for a good 15, 20, almost 20 years now, we've been keeping about 100 ships deployed at sea on any given day. Now we have fewer ships. 
fewer ships now, right? So we've deployed four, we've four deployed some more, and those all count as being deployed. Uh, and then we've been deploying them all longer and for uh, more frequently. And so, for example, back when you know, I was deploying on a submarine the, for the first couple of deployments, six months deployments were the norm. I mean, if you deployed more than six months, it was a big deal in any part of the Navy, not just submarines. Today, every deployment is more than six months. So 4% is the exact number in 1998 of deployments for more than six months. Today, every deployment is more than six months. So just to give you an idea of what we've done to mitigate the fact that the, the Navy's gotten smaller, we just used it harder. And what that does then is when we try to do estimates, when we run these models for readiness numbers, it's all kind of based on the fact that we assume that the ships are going in for maintenance at the proper intervals and getting all the work done that was supposed to be done at that time. Well, because they've been worked harder and because they get deployed uh, on short notice and for unplanned deployments, well, they may miss an availability or they may have an availability cut short. We've had carriers have that exact problem several times over the last few years, which means now the maintenance model doesn't work because when I go back and to plan the next maintenance availability, I don't have the kind of, I don't have a picture of what the ship looks like on the inside. Now, I have no idea what the condition of the tanks are, and that's traditionally where we have a lot of growth. So they go in for the next availability, and it explodes because there's all kinds of growth that was not anticipated because we failed to get the work done that was required in the previous availabilities, and it just sort of snowballs over time. So there's been lots of money in OCO to go towards readiness, but we haven't been able to efficiently use it because we can't plan out the work and actually accomplish it as planned each time. You bring a ship into the shipyard for an availability and you think it's going to be whatever, however many years or however many months, and then it drags out to five years and you ask why. Well, why? Number one, ship was broke, more broken than you thought it would be because of all the reasons you said. But also the workforce is less skilled, right? right? And then there's another thing, especially in the surface ships, where the sailors are not as trained to do the kinds of things on the ship while it's deployed that they used to do, and also because the ships are more complex, and the way we, you know, some somebody probably got a Harvard MBA based on some new model that said, we'll, we'll let right. the contractors do this when they come back in, but when you're out at sea for six, right. oh, wait, nine months, right. um, it's just hard broke, right? right? And so the ships are limping in, I think, a lot, in a lot more soft. <laughs> On the surface ships, at least, I think I think Tommy Roden is trying to at least fix that part of it, right? Where the the sailors are oh, yeah. actually going to be doing more on ships. So, I mean, it's it's like a it is definitely a, a confluence of events or a perfect storm that has created that has created this big ripple. Speaking of perfect storms, Madam Secretary, you were present for the last year of Ray Mavis's. Um, Battle royal with OSD over over the number of over sh over a question of building ships versus uh, spreading more capacity around the architecture. Um, what was the logic mm -hmm. of Ray Mavis's argument? Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think to 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 Ray Mavis's credit, he focused like a laser beam on shipbuilding. And, um, and he knew that um, some of those other things that you described would, would the, the, the system would naturally take care of those issues, right? So he felt like, I mean, my conversations with him, that his role as secretary is to, is to push on the things that won't otherwise necessarily get done. And so the industrial base is an incredibly complex thing, as we've just described. You turn that spigot off, you don't get to turn it back up very quickly again, and, um, and it's also highly politicized. 
And if there's another thing that Ray Mavis is good at, it's the politics. And so I think he felt like that was not only his comparative advantage that he could he could work on that issue, but to get that machine, the industrial machine, working again and then, you know, turn it over to the next administration. I mean, it is actually it is actually up and running again. And he wasn't going to do anything that was going to undermine that. Well, far be it for me from criticizing Ray Mavis, because uh, I love me some Ray Mavis. But but I would say um, one thing that uh, that comes out of that, though, is that their Navy's focus over the last eight years on uh, competition and driving down prices through competition uh, has tended to uh, force the shipyards to cut to the bone some of the you know, <laughs> overhead, I guess, or some of the training programs, some of the things that would have enabled them to surge their capacity or grow their capacity, uh, because they have to take those things out. That's all unnecessary uh, excess that they're not able to afford if they're trying to compete with somebody to uh, try and get a shipbuilding contract. Um, you know, and also uh, the supplier industrial base gets squeezed as well. I think that's where our probably biggest challenge is with regard to growing the fleet is all the suppliers that provide yeah. the pumps and the valves and the uh, electrical equipment and the switchboards to ships, all those guys are getting uh, squeezed really hard, and they're only getting their purchases made in lots that are associated with multi-year procurement. So they might, they might yeah. get a grunge load, you know, they get uh, you know, 10 or 20 of these things ordered at once, and then they won't get another order for five or six yeah. years. And add to that the politics of the budgeting cycle. And those smaller suppliers are on the end of the whip. And, um, and when you put that kind of turbulence in the system, and they will drop off. Right. And then it's like, you know, a huge weapon system or a ship, you know, kind of stalled in its tracks because of some, like, one or two um, parts of the supply chain. Yeah, it's a big issue. It's a big issue. So I think his attitude was, i got to keep the chi in the system here. i got to keep this thing going. Um, and that, you know, it's easier to uh, put weapons on ships if you have ships later. Um. We're going to run out of time. Really? That, that's life. But, uh, um, but so I'd like to uh, ask for questions from the from the floor and uh, a couple of things for questioners. Um, uh, would you please identify yourself and uh, if you're connected with an organization, what it is, and also would you allow time for? Um, the microphone to reach you before you start questioning. There's a question here in the front row. Thank you. Um, thank you all for taking the time to talk to us today. Very instructive. And if I'm incorrect, correct me, but congratulations to the new university president. Oh, thank you. Um, I was in the Marine Corps, so I should know this, but I don't. The former Secretary of the Navy a few years ago stated that the littoral combat ships are frigates. And the commentary was, if the Secretary of the Navy says it's a frigate, it's a frigate. I had a discussion with Rolls-Royce a couple months ago about an RFI from a NATO country for three frigates. And the Rolls-Royce guys, both Naval Academy graduates, said, well, they're not frigates, they're corvettes. I said, well, the RFI says frigates. They said, well, it's wrong. They're corvettes. Would any of you explain to us how it is determined that a corvette is a corvette, a frigate is a frigate, a destroyer is a destroyer, 
a cruiser is a cruiser, etc. And given that, and the uh, need for approximately 75 new vessels, where would that thrust be? Would it be in one of those, or would it be in carriers, or would it be in fast attacks, or boomers, or speciality ships that support the Marine Corps, and of course the Navy is part of the Marine Corps. Brian, I think Thank you. That's a good one for you. Uh, so, uh, with regard to ship. No. Marine, you're <laughs> so a Marine. My name's Ross Duckworth. I'm a defense consultant, and I'm retired from the United States Marine Corps. Sorry. Uh, thank you for your service. The uh, I guess my answer would be with regard to ship naming. There's a there's a book of ship. There's a ship naming convention that the Navy has. There's a large book of historical ship names where it describes, you know, different names that have been different classifications rather that have been used over time and some of the characteristics associated with them. So it gives you some general ideas with regard to whether to call something a frigate or a corvette, uh, but it's not fixed in stone. So I think you could just as easily call an LCS a frigate as you could a corvette. Um, I don't know that that's that, that important because it's more important what capabilities it brings rather than what you call it. So, Because uh, right now you look at a lot of the European navies, they have uh, six or 7,000 ton ships that have each as fire control systems and vertical launch system magazines, and they call them frigates, but they're really more like destroyers. So it's, it's sort of you know, vague as to what constitutes each, each class. Uh, then with regard to the types of ships in our fleet architecture, uh, we argued it, it's not just adding 75 ships to the Navy, but if you think of that in those terms, uh, we would be adding ships, uh, we've added attack submarines, so we have 66 submarines as being the requirement in our fleet, our fleet architecture compared to the Navy's former requirement of 48. Uh, we had in there a requirement for 71 frigates, which would be more like a European-type frigate, so a larger frigate that's got air defense capabilities and anti-submarine warfare capabilities. Uh, we had a requirement for, as Brian said, 42 patrol vessels were kind of like the Visby class, fast missile craft sort of corvettes. Um, and then we had a smaller number of sm larger surface combatants, so a smaller number of destroyers than what the Navy had in its previous requirement or in its new requirement. So we actually rebalanced the surface fleet from a relatively large number of large surface combatants to actually a more, uh, I guess, more balanced fleet of large surface combatants, uh, frigates, and, and corvettes that would then be able to go do, uh, do more distributed operations like the Navy wants to do. I think that's also because your architecture... Um, valued if not prioritized presence right and so you know not every ship can be a destroyer you know financially but also you don't necessarily need that right right, right. and you may not be able to get into certain places i think the 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 sort of binary debate that we have about the lcs i think misses a lot of that nuance i mean we could put we could put lcs's in the black sea in more numbers than you're allowed to put like destroyers right, right? Exactly. so there's there's things where you want to you want to think about that and uh, if i could just add a point here that a uh, ship without uh, an effective um, defense against aircraft is not a frigate. And the LCS, as currently constituted, does not have an effective air defense. Therefore, the LCS is not a frigate. Well, I'm just saying, based on the, the naming conventions that you know we refer to when we try to name these ships, that's what they use. Yeah. Uh, I have a question over there. Thank you for taking my uh, question. Um, Andrew Braddock, I represent Rheinmetall. It's a German company. We make a lot of equipment for naval vessels. Um, Welcome. I'm sorry? Welcome. Thank you. 
I don't speak a word of German right. other than torpedo, torpedo loose from uh, World War II or something. <laughs> um, th to clarify his question about frigates, now this, this Navy's going to do this very easily in the near future because we've emasculated DOT&E, so those bad guys are out of the picture. Um, the LCS is going to be renamed the frigate, and they're going to jigger it around, and they're going to, it's like taking a Twinkie and dyeing it green and calling it health food. That's, the, that's what's going on. That's not my question. My, my question. My question was about. I, I sat in on the uh, brief the, uh, yesterday, a, a very good one, and uh, I, I don't quibble at all with the with the constitution of it. The question is, how do you get there? We talked a little bit about the uh, uh, about the uh, industrial base. The more in interesting thing for me, and I hope this is not, not going to happen. The LCS program, which I think. If you don't think it was an unmitigated disaster, you're kind of living under a rock, but okay. Um, in terms of acquisition and in terms of engineering, it's a, it was a serious problem. Has that business corrupted the rest of the acquisition and engineering process? Well, so the LCS has had some troubles getting out of the gate. I mean, I'm not here to defend the LCS as well before my time, but I mean, I see, I see uses for it. Um, you know, when you look at every major weapon system that comes online, you have these kinds of problems. I mean, you had it with the Arleigh Burke, you have it with every aircraft carrier, you certainly have it with aircraft, F-18s, Osprey, right? And so I would like to think, I'm optimistic enough to think, that we'll look back and say, oh, you know, same kind of growing pains, trying to get these ships out too fast, maybe, who knows? Um, what did we learn from that? Um, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not convinced that it's like, compared to other historical examples, you know, any more of a, of a disaster in an acquisition sense of the word. Um, so the, whether it's polluted all the other ones, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I actually am not seeing, I'm seeing lessons being taken from that, you know, they were very, um, and you guys can comment on this as well, but they were very uh, ambitious in this idea. They had this modular program, they had two different versions. You can question the wisdom of that. And then you're realizing, back to my, back to my beating the drum on sustainment, you know, you have two different crews you have to train, you have two different kinds of, you know, and that became sort of very complicated. And if, again, if you look at what Tommy Roden's doing, he's like, okay, let's, let's, let's get back to basics here. Um, you know, sailors are going to be sailors. We're going to let them train on these ships. We're going to put these on the left coast, these on the right coast, and we're going to try to get this rationalized. I think that'll put some, um, I think that'll that'll put some calm in the system, and we'll see where it goes. But what do y'all think? No, I agree. I, I think uh, it's a good cautionary tale for how we can better manage acquisition, because uh, in a lot of ways, what happened with LCS was the result of changing requirements once you've decided to develop a program rather than establishing the requirements right, and then coming up with a design. Too. Right, right. So we've done that before. Clearly, that's been a problem in, in different classes of ships. But um, it really drives home the point that you need to decide what your requirements are going to be. What is it you're trying to get the ship to do uh, and focus the design on those requirements and then build to that design and not, not change it a whole lot because a big you know, challenge with LCS and a lot of the cost over, overruns and increases have been due to changes to the design as a result of requirements that have evolved over time. Are there questions from this side of the room and the back there, please? 
Hi, good afternoon. Alex Sanchez, I'm a defense analyst. When you were talking about this growing fleet and where it could be deployed, you talked about the Black Sea, Russia, China. Um, I have to ask, what do you think about the future of the fourth fleet, aka the paper fleet? It's assigned to Southcom. Um, current commander of Southcom, Andros Tid, has said that the Southcom is the lowest priority for the commands, gets the fewest assets. There's nothing new, other commanders have usually said that. Do you force, what do you think, so my question would be, what do you think is the future of the fourth fleet in the sense of, do you foresee any scenario in which the fourth fleet, Southcom, can get any assets from this growing Navy, growing fleet? Thank you. I mean, I, I, sort of geopolitically, as long as the, as long as we don't have the sort of problems in the, in that region of the world that we have in some of the other regions of the world, I think that the Southcom commanders and the fourth fleet commanders are going to constantly be, um, be uh, getting the short end of the stick in the global force management. Even when we build a bigger fleet, <laughs> they're still going to have that problem. What's going to change that? Geopolitics are going to change that. I mean, we prioritize it every single day. We have a we have a year-long force management plan at the at the OSD level that the Navy feeds into, and we adjust it every quarter, and then we adjust it every week, and we adjust it every day, um, and it is a constant tug. Uh, among the among the commanders in this supply and demand system that is absolutely not perfect. Again, this is where allies really help. I mean, it is there are other people in all these AORs as well. Yeah. So part of the reason we were able to send as many ships as we did in the past to Southcom and well, what was fourth before Fourth Fleet, but you know, that component commander was because we had a lot of older ships that were kind of Cold War era ships that weren't necessarily as useful in some of the higher end missions we were doing at the time. So frigates. Older submarines. I had a lot of my friends on submarines going and doing attack submarine deployments out down in the Caribbean, looking for drug runners or you know doing port calls. But that that was we had ships available to do that because we couldn't use them in other places, and we had this sort of leftover capacity from the Reagan buildup that that we were going to employ for those purposes. We don't have, of course, that luxury now. And even in a larger fleet, if you build them all out with these higher end capabilities, as we think is appropriate. You still, like Janine said, you may not have the driving for driving the driver that would force you to send them down there. So you still may not send a lot of ships down there, even with a larger fleet. It's important to remember that uh, the the famous Unitas exercise, annual, um, very intensive uh, fleet exercise, was a Cold War thing. It was part of a larger geostrategy for containing the Soviet Union and our. Southern uh, partners were fully invested in it, and there were missions and roles uh, versus the Soviets that they had, and it was a way of us helping to ensure that they were on top of it, conducting training, those sorts of things. And so, as the secretary says, geopolitics change, Cold War. I mean, uh, uh, great power contention becomes uh, more of a, a factor those kinds of alliances and those kinds of exercises are going to rise in importance. And Southcom, or that AOR, is, is, a, is an area also where when you think about diplomacy development and defense, defense is sort of the shorter leg in that stool. This is why it's uh, not the best of ideas to be slashing budgets of our partner agencies, because as General Mattis has been on record as saying, you know, they're, they're the, they're part of the prevention, you know? And so um, I think we should watch on, watch on that as well. That will change the geopolitics of that region. Sure. 
thank you for coming. Mitsuo Nakai is my name, uh, uh, member of Reagan Foundations. Uh, I need to talk about Pacific. Uh, it says 350, so does, does it mean additional 74, 84 ships? It says ships, but how many of them is the aircraft carrier? How many destroyer? And how many can be in the Pacific? Uh, I'm, I'm referring to South China Sea against Chinese challenge or belligerency, including East China Sea, a Senkaku Island. I'm a Japan native, U.S. citizen, so it, it is my concern, the Pacific. So my question is, is it going to be adequate? If yes, when? Is it going to be adequate? So I would say we don't know what the 350 is uh, because uh, the administration really hasn't made clear what the mix of ships is within that 350. Uh, in our study, like Brian was saying, we came up with a number of 340, which, you could, which would grow to 382 if you count all the patrol vessels in it. Um, the Navy's own requirement that they just set out is 355, which uh, was, would involve an increase in mostly submarines, large service combatants, and amphibious ships. Uh, and we made a lot of increases along the same lines in our study. Uh, so it's not necessarily aircraft carriers that are growing you know, in this 350, 355 ship Navy. It's mostly in the ships that actually end up being the kind of backbone of a, of a Navy, which is surface ships, surface combatants, submarines, and amphibious ships. Uh, if you think about, you know, at least when we did our math to figure out what that would do in terms of presence overseas, a Navy of that size would certainly be able to have more forces over in the Pacific on any given day. So today, uh, normally, if you look at the number of ships deployed to the Pacific, it's between 50 and 60. Now, about half of those guys are based there. You know, they're, they're living in Japan or they're, they're rotationally crewed. They're maritime sea lift command ships that have their crews rotate in and out of there. About half, so about half of them are, are living out there. Uh, that number would grow with a 350-ship Navy to you know, maybe more like 80 ships uh, or more, depending on you know, exactly the mix of ships and how you postured them. Talk a little bit about the, how you tailored the architecture in the South China Sea versus the East China Sea. So what we proposed is you'd want to take uh, the forces in the South China Sea uh, and make them much more proportionally oriented, meaning I'd send a lot more smaller surface combatants to the South China Sea. Uh, of course, that's more ships than they're there now. Uh, but it would also be a different mix of ships than we would normally deploy there. So, for example, right now, the, uh, the uh, Carl Vinson's doing a deployment to the South China Sea, so a big carrier strike group, which obviously is a big show of force and a, you know, a deterrent effect potentially against the Chinese, but it's not a very proportional tool. So what do the, does the carrier strike group do when it gets harassed by a bunch of fishing vessels? Do they launch airplanes and go blow all those people up? Probably not, because that's not a very proportional response. And the U.S. now would be perceived as the aggressor. Uh, if you instead had smaller surface combatants like fast missile craft or, or frigates out there, that gives you a way to you know, maybe do shouldering operations, or you can even go to a warning shot, but something that it actually allows you a much more proportional response to aggression from a small set of ships than what you could achieve with a carrier strike group. 
Uh, and in the East China Sea, you need a force that's able to complement those of our allies in Korea uh, and in Japan. Uh, obviously, they have very capable navies and capable you know, ground forces as well. But uh, there are certain capabilities they don't necessarily have in large numbers. So, you know, the Japanese Maritime Self Defense Force doesn't have a lot of strike capacity. So that might be something that the U.S. has to think about bringing to bear. Um, you know, anti-submarine warfare is something they're very good at, but maybe submarine warfare, offensive submarine warfare, might be something that the U.S. would help with. So, complementing allies would be the important thing in the north, uh, the Northeast Asia or the, the East China Sea area. And your study also challenges a little bit the primacy of the carrier strike group as the end-all, right. be-all. I mean, you're going to use more surface action groups and right. things like that, right? Right. So the forces that we would maintain forward and the, the deterrence forces, which are the forward forces we postured around the world, uh, don't actually have uh, large carriers in them. They have uh, ARGs in them, so amphibious ready groups, which would include a light carrier, which is a repurposed uh, large deck amphibious ship, so the, C the LHAs, LHDs. Those are part of your forward forces, and they provide the day-to-day -day operations as well as being the front line of defense against aggression. Your carrier strike groups would be at some remove, so they would be operating out in the Indo-Asia-Pacific region with the flexibility to go you know, everywhere in that theater that the COCOM may want them to go. But it, keep, it divorces them from this role of being the front line of defense, front line of deterrence, uh, because it presents a target that can be uh, suppressed. You know, so it's not that the carriers are going to get killed on day one. It's just they can, you could, they could, you know, a Chinese or a Russian a set of attacks could suppress their operation because it just keeps the flight deck from being able to operate effectively for you know some number of days. And by the time that's that the conflict is over, then they might, you know, the carrier might not have participated very much. So the key is to bring the carrier in in a role that enables it to maximize the firepower it can bring to bear. So having it not necessarily be the front line defense, but being the, the, the next force back is the way to best use it. So just last thing I'll say on this is we're very focused on the numbers of ships. But to me, coming out of this last year, <clears throat> one of the things that I think is more even more promising in some ways is a lot of the creative thinking that's going on in terms of concepts of operations and doctrine things like distributed lethality and what Brian just described holistically, but also when you think about the F-35 and how that's going to completely change the, what, you know, what goes on in the amphibs and the way the Marines are thinking about how that's going to change the way they operate. Um, and I think that we may find those to be more force multipliers or change completely asymmetrically the way we are operating. Yeah, and I, I just like to, this point needs to be added here, and that is that, is it, what our panelists are assuming here is a sort of normative state of um, the United States' relations with other countries, both friends and potential adversaries. Um, that's an assumption. Uh, if American leadership in the future decides that this or that country, which under these normative conditions we consider as potential adversaries, are not in fact potential adversaries, then all the then the assumption is, you know, then the, the consequences are nullified, right? So uh, it, it, we're talking about here, um, all of us, um, sort of the status quo. Uh, with the United States in the, the role that it has assumed over the past 50, 60 years since the end of the, since the end of World War II. And what there is general agreement among us, um, represents potential adversaries. And under those assumptions, what you're saying is perfectly sensible, correct? And 
I think there's agreement on it. But then there's always the question, is that assumption correct? Okay, so uh, we have room, we have space for another, another, another question, don't you think? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You could take, I mean, are you saying we need to wrap up? Because you could just take like three questions and we could mm -hmm. do that way. That's fine. Yeah. One. Quick. Robert Bible, U.S. Army, retired. Given, let's back up a little bit and not talk about 30 years. Let's talk about the next five years. Given real numbers today and potential threats today, if you have to make the choice tomorrow to spend the money on 350 ships or maintaining what we've got and increasing the readiness of the F-18s, what do you do? What's your decision? Why don't you answer, answer that question? <laughs> that's a false choice because uh, the problem we have today is that uh, is not a money problem. The readiness problem today, and it, it's partially a money problem, but it's mostly a overuse problem. The reason we haven't been able to do a lot of the maintenance is because everybody's out there getting going deployed, and so we need to keep ships in port. We need to get the F-18s back into the depots, and yeah, so there's some money involved. But we can get that money, and that money has been available. It's the fact that we have been not we've been overusing the force that prevents it from being able to get the maintenance done, and especially get it done in an efficient way. So I, I would argue that, that part of the decision is also you just need to be able to keep some of the force at home in order to reset it. I think that's true. But I also think that every once in a while, and I saw it happen a number of times, um, there would be a debate and the, the, you know, the force commanders are asking for money for the moment and people are, and there's always a battle. And so, um, I mean, I, I was very focused on making sure we, we, that what he said was true. That, the, that it wasn't a money problem that was causing us our readiness issues. General Mattis has answered that question for us. His number one priority is current readiness. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't get the ships on the water and the planes in the air today, then your your future is going to look a lot different. And so I, I think it's I think it's incredibly it's incredibly important. But to but there is a point at which it is a bit of a false choice. I think it, I think it's true. But um, you've got to get the ships on the water and the planes in the air. That's your job. All right. Quick, quick, quick questions, quick answers. Here. Uh, Rick Burgess, Sea Power Magazine. Question for Brian. Oh, thank you. Uh, Rick Burgess, Sea Power Magazine. Uh, for Brian, you, you talk about light carriers in your document uh, transitioning from the large sick amphibs, but when I read that, it made me think of the Falklands War when the Royal Navy had a rough go of it without an airborne early warning capability. Do you really think the light carrier can survive in situations where it might need to like that? Yeah, so, there, so two things on that is, one, uh, if you're going to go into a conflict, uh, you wouldn't necessarily bring just the light carrier. You would bring the, the larger carrier, too. So the idea is that the light carrier is there to be able to conduct the day-to-day -day strike operations. And then if there's a conflict that starts, it's kind of the first line of defense. So to get to, your, to that point, you know, what if a fight starts and the light carrier is the only thing there? Then what we have in the study is that we're, we're going to need to complement it with land-based E2. Uh, so one thing that we haven't really thought about that much as a Navy is, could I base E2s and have detachments in various places overseas to complement these light carriers? Because the Japanese E2s are operated from land. Uh, so that's an option that we could pursue as well. And then last, we talk about using the TURN, which is a new uh, unmanned vehicle that DARPA is developing, as an early warning uh, airborne radar that you, you know, it's not obviously going to give you a lot. It's not going to give you NIFCA and stuff that the E-2 might, but it would certainly give you the elevated sensor that the E-2 does. Please, sir. 
Ted Voorhees, Covington and Burling. Given the challenges to surging a whole, you know, new upgraded Navy by 2030 or whatever, to what extent are we going to be able to rely on allies to build their navies? And do you expect that there will be some outsourcing of part of our mission to built up allied navies in the interim? I think there already has been some outsourcing of our mission. I mean, we had these availability problems. The French did cover down on our carrier operations in the Gulf. We are sending Marines to help the British kickstart their aircraft carrier, the QE, the Queen Elizabeth. They're going to have F-35s, and we have F-35s, so our Marines are going to go fly integrated with them. So I think you're going to see not just outsourcing or division of labor, but if we're smart and we keep doing kind of what we're trying to do, you'll see more integrated operations. I mean, when do we go to war without our allies? So I've been saying for 10 years, you train the way you fight or you die the way you train. That's what I was taught in the Air Force. We fight with allies. We should be integrated. So I think you'll see more of that unless we mess it up diplomatically. One last question here. Thank you. This is a very long question, and I'll draw it out. Awesome socks, by the way. Nevin Carr, I'm a retired naval officer, a former SWO, and I will say that I always thought that Unitas cruises should be mandatory for every ensign. It will keep you in the Navy. It was an awesome cruise. So my question has to do with trends. And if there's one trend or one pair of trends that keeps me awake, it's this increasing trend in the time it takes us to field systems, just to decide what we want to buy, then to conceive of it and design it and get it off the drawing board into production and out into the field, versus the decreasing trend in time it takes for that system to be obsolete or disrupted. And if you can think of what carriers did in World War II, but that's happening on a shorter and shorter scale. So how, and as you said, it's much more about the number. So how do we bake this in on the front end as we go to 350 if we do? And can we bake this in? Because at some point those two lines cross, right, and things are just obsolete before you can get them out there. So at the component level we're kind of there in some things. So anyway, can you talk about how you bake that into increasing the fleet size? This is exactly how you get the problem with the changing requirements, right? Because, you know, we're already doing a slip on some of the F-35s. I mean, they're not even, like, off the ground yet. I mean, so that's how long it takes. I think it's a huge problem. So what we're trying to say is, you know, you need to take more risk, which is, like, what the hell does that mean? You have to be able to try things and fail and try again. But the problem is, and we all know this, we say it over and over again, but then the politics get in the way, and the LCS is a great example, right? It's a rocky start. We tried this, we failed. We tried this, we failed. We'll try something else. We'll try to do something else. And you could lose. There's another whole curve running through your chart, and that's the politics, because people say you don't know what you're doing if you try to do it that way. So I think it's a huge conundrum. I don't have an answer on major weapon systems or big ship systems, but on a lot of munitions and a lot of some of those things, I think we're actually 
we're actually understanding that a little bit better. But I don't know what you guys think. Well, I agree. I agree with that. And I, I think um, if we, you know, go to go back to Admiral Greenard's term of payloads and platforms, I think if we think of payloads, so, you know, mission systems, weapons, things you attach to a platform uh, as separate from the platform, you, we have been able to achieve a faster rate of uh, innovation in those payloads, mostly by modifying existing payloads to have a new functionality or to you know, evolve them over time. So if you think about um, El Razam, which is the new anti-ship missile that the Navy is developing. Well, that that grew, grew out of the JASM program. Uh, if you think about the work that we've done on Tomahawk, obviously there's been a lot of changes in Tomahawk over time. Uh, Aegis, you think of the Spy One radar. If you go look at a Spy radar, Spy One radar today, uh, you go to the back side of it. It looks completely different than the analog versions that first came out into the fleet when it was first developed. And you think about, you know, AMDR then, you know, it looks kind of the same, but it takes a totally different approach. But we sort of evolved over time those radar systems to incorporate new technologies. Uh, but for the operators, it's, there's new functionality, there's new capability brought onto it, but you don't have to retrain them completely in terms of how the ship works or how the weapon works because they're familiar with it. So that modification process may be a way to bring in capability faster, uh, but it's not a it's not necessarily a planned incremental change. It's probably something we have to take advantage of new technologies and incorporate those and inject them when they're available. But platforms, you know, like ships and aircraft, we might have to live with the fact that you're, they're a big capital investment, and you buy them, and you've got to just you know accept the fact that they're going to be somewhat set uh, until you replace them with a successor program down the road. Uh, we did the fleet architecture. Like you said, change them right significantly. Right, and they so they can, and certainly as payloads have gotten smaller and have reduced their swap requirements, you know they they they're easier to take a new system on because it doesn't require as much you know cooling as its predecessor or power. So it's easier to bring on something new as opposed to having to re re-engineer the ship to support a new system. Let, let me take a stab at this with a little rant. Um, I want a three hundred fifty ship navy. I don't want a three hundred fifty ship navy that is. 75 more ships that are built exactly like the way we build them today. We build point solutions for a set of requirements, and on the day that ship is commissioned, let's say it's a DDG, it is the most sophisticated and capable warship in the world, and it immediately begins to decline relative to the threat. And it declines relative to the threat for 10 or 12 years until we bring it in and spend $150 million on it and upgrade it to bring it back to the level of the threat, at which point it begins its next cycle. We have to build ships from the get-go in a way that enables them to be reconfigurable and flexible. The only way we're ever going to do that is if we value that as a requirement. We don't value that kind of reconfigurability and flexibility as a requirement right now. Until we do, we'll continue to get point solutions that are expensive and exquisite and immediately begin to degrade. Well, I'd like to thank our distinguished panel here. Janine, Brian, Brian, um, for a very interesting conversation. Uh, and also, the um, your questions from the floor have been thoughtful, and uh, I think there's been a good exchange. And I hope you'll stay tuned, because this is um, not the last uh, attempt to look at um, where the Navy is going in this administration is the first one. Um, so we will continue to watch this, and uh, we hope that you will continue to stay tuned, and that we'll see you again in the near future. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir.